Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to season four of the Fast Track Impact podcast. Okay, <laughs> welcome to the podcast, uh, Petra Boynton. It is a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Petra, I've uh, been a big fan of what you've done for many years now. Um, I got to, to know about you through your work on uh, Twitter. Um, uh, your last book, in fact, um, I think it's The Research Companion, uh, I forget, I forget uh, that, that, that I, I appreciated and enjoyed um, and a load of support that you gave to readers of that book, which was great. Um, but uh, in particular, your uh, your most recent book is what I want to, to focus on uh, today, Being Well in Academia, Ways to Feel Stronger, Safer and More Connected, uh, published by Routledge. Uh, now, for those of you who don't know Petra, Petra is a social psychologist by training. She's an academic, a trainer, a consultant. Um, she does really broad, uh, broad-ranging stuff, uh, all the way from academic skills, research integrity, these kind of things, uh, right the way through to health and safety. Um, but uh, I particularly like uh, what you do, Petra, um, in the mental health space. Uh, and I think uh, also just the, the bravery that you have um, uh, in challenging some of the systems that perpetuate the challenges that we see, um, these systemic uh, issues that are leading to burnout, uh, that are preventing people from getting help, uh, where people are kind of jumping on the bandwagon and saying they're doing things, but uh, a word that, that you've used here is, is performative. <laughs> so it's, it's good to look like we're doing something good in this space, but actually, are we really doing something good? Um, so I wonder if you can start just by unpacking what you see as some of the, the key systemic challenges for us being well in academia, Petra. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's tricky to do in, in a short period of time, because I could talk about it all day, but I promise I won't. I, I, I think most people listening will recognise the the systemic problems to a greater or lesser degree. And they are things like the, the thing that makes academia run, really. So it's often the stuff that's sold to you when you come into academia, certainly when you're an undergraduate or doing a PhD or an early career researcher, as being things of value, things of, of they're positives, they're sold as. But of course, we know in a lot of ways they're not. And they would be things like sort of competitiveness, of overwork culture, of the idea of, of, you know, constantly striving for the next thing. So it's not just getting a grant. It must be a grant from a particular place and it must be to a particular value. It's not just publishing. You've got to publish in a particular journal and then you've got to be cited and you've got to be cited a certain number of times. So the sort of a metric metrification that goes on around our work the way that we are encouraged to not work collaboratively, although we talk about that, there is not really the sort of collegial space that I think we are enticed by, or certainly I was. Uh, there's a lot of, 
of sort of looking at other people, am I as good as them, being held up to other people and told you're not as good as them, um, the precarity aspect of work, um, the uncertainty of it. And, and I think that the sort of, it was a problem a long time before the pandemic, but the pandemic has not helped. Um, and I think that the sort of global financial concerns that are now coming up towards us too, um, have all left people feeling very uncertain and very anxious. Where do I fit? What can I do? And there has been collective organising, but not enough. And quite a lot of that collective organising, I think, has rightfully been about explaining problems and exposing harms and abuses. But of course, the difficulty with that is that that's a very challenging and difficult environment to be constantly wading through you know it's 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 people described it to me as sort of like wading through mud or through treacle is that you're kind of trying to get yourself out of something that's sucking you down endlessly so that was a kind of very long way of, of, of sort of identifying some of the problems and I'm sure people listening will be able to talk about many more bullying is something that we, we deal with a lot as a, a, a consequence of this sort of toxic environment and so my challenge has been for a very long time the fact that the university the academic system is in many ways the cause of our problems but is also supposed to offer us the solutions and and I don't think something that's harming you is actually the right or appropriate place to make you better so in a lot of cases I'm interested in what's the systemic problem that's making us unhappy or unwell and how do we challenge that rather than a sort of more surface level approach that I think is currently quite popular. Yeah, so I, I, I agree with that diagnosis, and I think a lot of people listening will resonate um, uh, the, the hustle, um, as it's sometimes described as, uh, that uh, then combined with this metrification, which encourages the constant comparison to others and the precarity of, of tenure, adding up to a toxic culture uh, that, that ultimately expresses itself through things like bullying. Uh, and when it comes to solving this, um, where I'd like to start is where you've begun, which is uh, thinking about how we can change the system. I'd like to also come to some of the bottom-up kind of strategies, uh, what we can do to survive, maybe even thrive uh, within uh, what is still a toxic culture, whilst trying to to fight for these more systemic changes. But um, you started by, by, by saying, well, maybe the first step uh, before we can uh, even begin to contemplate systemic change is to actually expose the problem uh, and understand that problem and the depth of that problem. But, uh, but, but more than just those case studies uh, of uh, the terrible things that, that, that happen, uh, to, to actually understand the, the, the breadth, the, you know, the tentacles um, uh, that these problems have, have, have used to just kind of infect uh, across the system. Uh, so, so tell me a bit more about what you've been doing, what we should be doing uh, collectively to expose these problems and, and the depth and breadth of those problems. And then tell me a bit more about some of the things that, that you think that institu institutions could do that would go beneath the surface. I mean, our biggest challenge, I suspect, is that 
we can talk about all these things, but it really requires the institution to recognise and respect it and want to change. And something has changed in the last 20 years. So I've been working on this for about 20 years now, not perhaps in the same way as I'm doing it currently, but certainly by looking at sort of systemic problems and, and safety uh, was where I began with this. And then it moved on to looking at bullying because every time I tried to teach about safety, someone would come up and say, well, it's all well and good teaching me about field work safety, but actually I'm happier being in field work because it's in my department that I'm being bullied. So it's sort of, it's it's spread since then. But I think what we're getting a lot of at the moment is that we'll have mental health days or we'll have it you know there's a world mental health day coming up soon universities across the uk and and worldwide are going to be branded you wait and watch all the social media will be about mental health and there'll be special statements made and and a link to some kind of helpline or something will be done and they might even have things like you know a cup of tea and a time to chat and things that are absolutely lovely but are, are utterly hopeless if the underlying culture and problems are not changed. And I think a lot of staff feel they have not been treated well uh, or respected or, or acknowledged what they've gone through and done above and beyond the call of duty. Um, and that's not just for universities. I think politicians haven't given that respect either. But students also, I think, talk about feeling you know, that they have not been given what they were expecting. And some of that's pandemic related, but some of it isn't. So I think that we need a, a kind of, it's even be above institutional level. So at the highest level of government, at the highest level of um, funding bodies and, and research organisations and university, um, you know, organisations, charities, and any, any big groups, of which there are now a lot, we need collective working there um, so it's not all this sort of silo practice and almost competition going on about who's doing different schemes and event you know activities it needs to be joined up and it needs to focus on a very diverse range of needs that people have so that would be for me the sort of starting point is it needs to be acknowledged and recognized far higher up than it is now and I'm not hopeful at this point that that will happen it's got better um, but you have to you have to fight for it. I mean, I, I I find it utterly ridiculous that I spend a large proportion of my time literally begging, you know, research councils, universities, um, funders, all, all sorts of different people, just to, to look at joined up systems of tuition, funding, supervision, and pastoral care. Um, these are all things that should be happening. It's not. I'm not asking for anything new or different, and and I I I'll be honest. I I I fail most of the time. I have not got a good success rate. I I spend a lot of time yelling about it. And you mentioned Twitter. I do a lot of time yelling on Twitter because that's the only place you can get people to notice. So trying to get meetings, trying to email people, trying to send them copies of resources and books offering to go and do training, offering to go and just be a good critical friend, um, trying to set up meetings um, is met largely with being ignored or, you know, thanks very much, and then again being ignored. So I think all of that culture needs to shift. Um, 
and I think, and maybe this is something you, you'd like to pause and, and sort of explore in a bit more depth. I, I think we need to have a discussion about why are we interested in academic mental health? Why now? What's happened to make that happen? And some of the more basic questions that as researchers we should always be asking about, well, what do we mean by academic mental health? And who are we talking about when we're talking about that? And how are we proposing to actually put things in place? So people quite often will say stuff like, every university department must have a resident counsellor, or it should be mandatory for anyone doing a PhD to have therapy as course of the PhD, or if you're an early career researcher, part of your career development should be mandatory counselling. And I think that there are pragmatic questions to ask about, is that needed? Is it appropriate? Is it? Are there any counsellors to do that job, actually? Um, I mean, that's a big problem. But also, what else can and should we be doing that's actually making people feel so unwell? Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, would that be something that you'd like to sort of go into in a bit more depth? Yeah, exactly. So uh, why are we asking this now? Well, I think we are kind of somewhere between the the, the exposed and the recognised phase. So you, you suggested three phases. First, we expose. Second, people start to recognise there's a problem. And thirdly, we start to change. Uh, and I think that the, that exposure is growing uh, in terms of momentum. Uh, the recognition now is, uh, is there uh, across the board, but a lot of that remains lip service because we haven't seen the actual real change that, that we want uh, that we want to see and from the top down um, I agree with you that we, we ideally need collective working across governments uh, funders universities to, to think about this in terms of the, the whole system uh, but I think that uh, for your average academic or PhD student or researcher uh, ultimately this is going to be their institution uh, that, that is going to, to really be able to move the needle uh, on this uh, and so what can we do to go beneath those uh, nicely branded words on social media next um, uh, next time as an event or a global day uh, on this? Um, and, uh, and I think my own experience of this is that all of the institutions I have worked with and do still work with, um, and I have many different roles, they all pay lip service to this. Um, and when you talk to the managers, they care about this stuff uh, and uh, devastated often to hear of the things that are happening under their watch and want to change them. But, uh, but nobody seems to know what to actually do about this. Um, so uh, I, I think I want to come on to the bottom up in a moment because I think there are things we can all do and we should all be part of this problem. It's not just a kind of an othering conversation where it's up to them, the senior managers. But but I think that there are things that senior managers can do. Uh, so I've talked and on the podcast about um, uh, changing from mentoring to coaching, creating safe spaces where uh, academics can talk uh, about uh, the whole of their lives, not just uh, their academic life and integrate that and think about um, how to get work-life balance, prevent burnout um, and things like that. Uh, we have ment uh, for mental health first aiders um, uh, at Scotland's Rural College where, where I work at the moment. Uh, I've never heard of the idea of mandatory counselling. I have no idea what I think of that. Some part of me thinks that's amazing. Other, another part of me thinks that's horrific. I, I, yeah, I'm really not sure. <laughs> um, 
But um, but yeah, I think the most people's experience is well, yeah, I've got a line manager and they have a pastoral responsibility. And the reality is, I see them once a year, and it's integrated with some kind of professional review process that actually intimidates the hell out of me. And <laughs> and yeah, the reality is, I feel that there is no real support or or or, or help there, and I suffer in silence. So, so yeah, expand on some of these options. Um, if you are a, a senior manager, head of school, head of a research group, a PI on a project, what are the things you can do to put in place that might prevent things going wrong, ideally, or help people uh, for whom things are getting really difficult? When we look at the history, say the recent history of academia, a way I think a lot of the discourse runs is it's either that it was great in the past and it's terrible now, or that actually it was terrible in the past and now because of you know regulation and metrics and all sorts of assessments and things that now it's under control and better. And in truth, it's it's neither of those things. In the past, we did used to have systems in place that are no longer there. And I think people forget that. And it may be because they've not been in academia long enough to, to know that at all or they're so stressed with just trying to keep up that, that you know those memories are gone or there's no point in thinking back to the past because you know we're not there anymore but it's it's really important to note that we did used to have systems even if they were not always perfect of supervision tuition funding um and there were things like when we talk about counseling so I would say in terms of mandatory counselling, I don't think mandatory counselling is good for anybody. You know, if you're being pushed to do something you probably don't need, it's not going to help you. Um, But something like debriefing may well be useful or a space to vent or perhaps, you know, a common room where you can all share a coffee or a space that there is a counsellor available should you need it. People, I think, are not aware that, that those places have been cut, not just because of the pandemic, but beforehand. So lots of services um, were cut outside of academia. So our mental health services in the UK have been absolutely decimated, and particularly CAMs for young people. So a lot of young students coming in have probably been on the waiting list to get mental health care and are still waiting when they get to university. Now, our university counsellor is not necessarily the same as psychiatric support that they should have had years ago, or maybe an assessment um, to you know, identify if they have learning difficulties or their neurodivergence. So there's lots of things that have broken outside academia that we're expecting academia to fix, but at the same time, we also broke them in academia and we didn't bother to replace them. And, and so my interest is, is looking at things like when I talk to staff and students and I when, when I say staff I don't just mean people who are doing academic jobs I mean people who are doing all sorts of jobs in, in universities so it could be people working in catering or people working in cleaning or people who are admin or who are lecturing as a sessional lecturer or you know a, a fully tenured um, professor it's it's very interesting that that supervision is often not there so that could be equipment, it could be instructions, it could be time for somebody to spend knowing do you know what to do in your job. And so a lot of times when they're talking about being very unhappy and distressed, it's it's coming from 
not knowing what they're supposed to do or not being paid adequately to do it or inadequate housing or inadequate working conditions or the fact that you're expected still in this day and age where actually we do know really well how to support people doing lots of different research jobs that you are still expected to muddle through somehow and and some people still have this sort of attitude that learning by error or learning by doing is great and you know I think being allowed to make mistakes is great but the expectation that you learn by making preventable mistakes that cause a great deal of upset to you and waste time is not good practice so you know as you said with the pastoral care example, yes, there's someone you can talk to, but you're only going to see them once a year and they couldn't be less interested when you talk to them if you go there. Um, there isn't, you know, supervisors are expected to supervise PhDs, for example, or big projects with minimal training and minimal assistance and huge pressure, you know, and you're not being evaluated on did you care and nurture your team and, and, and support participants in the community and ensure that you did really rigorous, ethical, careful and inclusive work, you know, all of those things to me would be valuable things to measure and metrics if we were going to have metrics. You're measured on do you get a publication at the end, you know, and have you satisfied your funders and can you put on the website that you've got a fantastic grant. So I, I think that there are lots of things that have dropped and have gone by the wayside around tuition around supervision around joined up campus care so if there is stuff it may be that there is support there but nobody knows um as you said you often talk to managers and they're upset about this i very often talk to different departments where they've got really innovative and fantastic projects and i am glad to see places like the office for students now are showcasing that work more where they funded work but we aren't documenting and evaluating and learning from that or sharing it. And even in the same department, people may not know that something really fantastic and innovative was being tried uh, or something as basic as just, you know, a cup of tea and a time to chat once a week. Um, that's simplistic. And I dislike it when it's sort of rolled out as a solution, but actually these sort of informal things that people can build their own care systems within always work really well and and it's it's the taking away of those spaces i think the other thing that's really important that we ignore is things like study skills things like library services um disability offices accessibility a lot of people are are made very unhappy and unwell because the the accommodations that they're legally entitled to are not provided and if they are provided they're done with such bad grace and and such you know poor you know poor delivery so a lot of the time it's not it's why I want to come back always to what do we mean by mental health because I think most people's idea of mental health and the way most universities present it is mild to moderate anxiety or depression that has got nothing whatsoever to do with the institution you're just feeling a bit glum or a bit worried, and a kind of vaguely defined mental health care or counselling is going to sort that. And it absolves the university, I think, of any responsibility, but it also ignores the fact that bullying and racism and ableism and all the other prejudices that universities not only let thrive, but often encourage or blame victims for, um, 
along with this sort of pressure cooker environment that we're in and the lack of supervision and support because we are not investing in that you know we are we are doing more and more and more research you know it's like endless research we could almost do with doing a bit less research really but we're doing so much work and running around on these hamster wheels and yet nobody is being trained up and yet also everyone expects and assumes that that's in place so people assume that you've been trained to supervise people assume that during your phd you learn essential research skills People assume that time management and leadership and all these other things, how to manage your emails, how to manage your rest, how to you know, work online or work from home or all the other things that, that we do, is assumed that, that either innately you have them or that somebody somewhere, but not us, have provided that support. And, and for me, I think a large amount of this mental health crisis that we're discussing would disappear overnight if funding, um, supervision, training, pastoral care, those sort of four things were, and, and work-life balance, if those things were put into place alongside sort of tackling the inequalities and harms that go on, would probably then leave a space for people who are still struggling Um and maybe also give us a bit more of a broader space because I think when we talk about mental health, it's not about um, severe mental illness, for example. Um, and, and, and so a lot of people talk about the fact that they are left out from discussions because their mental health difficulties or the causes of the mental health problems or possible solutions are not fit for purpose. I agree. And I think there's a very clear call here to invest and um, uh, the the kinds of people with the kinds of jobs and responsibilities that you're talking to here often, uh, I think, uh, have to justify um, uh, these things uh, with their business case. Uh, I do not think you should have to justify this kind of stuff for the business case but you know if that's how how it works at those levels then surely if you look at uh, the, uh, the 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 cost to the institution of the number of days off work uh, due to burnout the lack of productivity because people are just going around in circles being unproductive because uh, of just yeah, the low grades uh, exhaustion <laughs> that builds up uh, over time, uh, as you don't tackle these things and one thing compounds another, uh, it surely has to make sense on, on multiple levels. But there is just this element of our common humanity uh, and there has to be this moral appeal that we cannot continue doing this. We cannot continue to allow both the, the, the rights of mental and physical health issues in the academy to continue going the wrong way. Um I want to, to to finish by thinking a little bit about some of the, the stuff that we can do um, from the bottom up. Many of people listening to this, yeah, I don't have the power to change these things. Uh, I recognise this. I resonate with this. 
And perhaps if that's you, then uh, one of the things that, that I hope is happening now is that you're giving yourself a bit of self-compassion here as you recognize, yeah, this is a system-wide thing. This isn't just me, my group, my department, my faculty, my university. Um, there, there are others who experience this. Um, uh, and perhaps I can reach out to others in my own in, in networks uh, and start to, to talk about these in the expectation that others will resonate, others will talk, uh, and perhaps we can become more resilient uh, as a result. <clears throat> Um, I, I will confess that I have a bit of a Trojan model model, um, a tro Trojan horse model uh, for uh, for tackling these kinds of things, um, where uh, I effectively uh, do quite a bit of stuff on research integrity. Um, but my experience is, uh, especially for senior colleagues, you don't think that you need research integrity training. I mean, of course, your research has integrity. I do rigorous, robust uh, work. Um, uh, but it's surprising. Uh, how long ago was that training? Did you actually have any training in this stuff? And even if you did, actually, have things changed? Um, uh, and so uh, my next paper uh, coming out in um, uh, sustainability science uh, includes a uh, positionality statement, including uh, an apology for um, the epistemic racism in some of my own uh, PhD research. And we didn't get training in, in those kinds of issues at that time. Uh, but I now understand, um, and I'm trying to to make amends uh, for, for that. So these things change, we need this. Uh, but uh, my senior colleagues will come along to uh, an impact culture training. And uh, if this is about a research impact culture, then research integrity has to be one of the core foundations of a, of a, of a healthy uh, impact culture, uh, I, I would argue. And the same when it comes to work-life balance and mental health, uh, the people who need that most will not typically come along to this. Well, I'm too busy. Uh, that's the whole problem. I don't have work-life balance. I can't make time for a training on this. Uh, but my experience is that they will come along to something called um, the productive researcher because, yeah, I need to become more productive so that I can get more stuff done and maybe that's how I'll get my work-life balance and yes there are some things you can do in that productivity space that can help you do more stuff in less time and enable you to get work-life balance but ultimately this is a, a course about changing how you think and uh, and reframing your relationship with work so that you produce the deep stuff that, that really matters and don't just get caught up in this um, uh, one one final thing just to, to, to say um, before I get some of your thoughts. Um, uh, just uh, recently, we had a, a research group meeting um, uh, and there are two uh, white male professors in the group, me being one of them. Um, uh, and I was talking to, to the other guy and uh, we've both been having mental health problems and uh, and it's been impacting on our work. Um, and we are both aware that there are issues um, that our, our colleagues are if not facing now, going to face because of our own mental health challenges. And, uh, and it took a bit of uh, courage, but uh, we both said, you know what, if you'll speak about it, I'll speak about it. And we both went along to this research group meeting and just said, look, yeah, we're struggling at the moment. Uh, and these are the reasons. Um, and the response, yeah, the, the compassion, uh, the generosity um, of, the, of the group was, was incredible. Um, uh, and, uh, and one of the things that's come out of that is, hey, let's have a weekly social lunch just as a group. Let's meet up um, and we'll do it online so it's inclusive for everyone. Um, uh, and at the same time, yeah, what can we take? Um, because other people then started then saying, well, yeah, actually, I've been having similar problems as well. And yeah, actually, there are uh, things that we might want to take to senior managers. And what are the processes and how do we do that? And, uh, and how do we make sure that we all support each other? 
and and I thought what was great about this was that this is a meeting where uh, typically you do the rounds and everyone gives an update and we all tell each other of our successes. Oh, I published this paper and I've just submitted this grant and I'm working on this new thing. Do you want to get involved? And we create this 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 impression that everyone's life is perfect. We're all just producing stuff constantly. And I think I have been particularly guilty of that in this group. And so for me, this is about saying, you know what, we are all human beings and yeah, we all struggle and we need each other and trying to lead by example and saying, yeah, you know what, let's just talk about this stuff. And that's uh, your first point, let's expose the problem. Um, uh, and maybe we can we can find a way to support each other. So what are your thoughts on, for people listening to this? Yeah, I don't have the power to change the system, but I want to be part of the solution. What, what can we do? Well, I think there's several things we can do. And, and one of them, I think you just explained really well, is about in places you feel safe and comfortable being open and honest about what's going on. Now, that might be within a research team or within your department or with a discussion with a supervisor. It might be... Um, that you talk to a therapist or a helpline or your GP uh, or friends and family. Uh, I, I talk a lot about sort of setting up a support network and that can be whatever you choose it to be, but that you need, you can't do this alone. And I think that one of the things about both academia in its modern sense and also the way that we sort of talk about mental health is it's very, well, at least in, in the sort of global north, is it's, a collect, it's an individualistic model. So it's the idea that you strive to get better, you have things to fix, you have things to achieve and do. But actually, you you won't, it, it, it's, it's no good for you doing this on your own. It really isn't. So you, my, my first sort of tip is, is, is to recognise you aren't alone and to recognise that you are in a system that is currently broken and it's not your fault. Um, it doesn't mean that it's all bad or all terrible because we wouldn't be here if we didn't want to do it. A lot of us are here because we deeply love what we do for all sorts of reasons. And maybe it's just we need to pay the bills. I mean, it could be all sorts of things. But it's, 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 it is broken. Lots of places are broken at the moment. And, and I think living in a, an uncertain times is always challenging. But again, that's why I think having a collectivist approach so that's your friends your family um, your colleagues professional organizations support groups you found that could be sort of self-help support groups or mental health support groups or it might be academic groups um, but also joining a union if one is open to you there are lots and lots of different ways of knowing that you are not alone and, and I think everybody I know who's ever sought help whether that's to address bullying or to address well-being or to get research skills or, or for whatever reason they've gone about it, always feel worse just beforehand because it's anxious and, and they don't know what to expect and they're fearful it might, you know, get worse before it gets better. But they very, you know, they're, they're usually very relieved to have said something. And I think also the point you made about sharing, it's, you know, storytelling is very powerful. We've always known that. And there are a number of projects, I think, at the moment across academia where people are sharing their mental health stories and, and we can probably link to some of those for people to find. But I, I think being able to say there have been points in our lives that, that we've been mentally unwell because that's very common and we all struggle with it. And to maybe do that when you feel safe and comfortable is good. 
And and as you found, when you share it, people are like, oh my gosh, it's not just me. And and then it's like, well, where should we go next? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are some other things that we can do. I mean, one of them I think is we do need to be mindful of the fact that services outside academia, as I mentioned, are all being cut. And even though there's sort of lots of promises about transforming mental health and grand schemes at the moment, you know, because it's linked to the NHS and the NHS is being decimated, we have a real problem with accessing care. Um, People can pay for private therapy, but that's not necessarily what everybody wants or needs or can afford. So I think we have to look at the sort of approach that that we are in a bumpy time. There are things we need. We We can and should ask universities for them and hold them accountable. And I think the point you made about the sort of Trojan horse model in some ways works better. So they are less likely to do, they'll, they'll do like a mindfulness webinar that nobody wants or has the time to use. But actually they won't invest in like a whole department sort of strategizing to address mental well-being and, and embed that through everything they do. That's what they should be doing, but they're not probably going to do that. Much as I shout about it, they probably are. But I think if we all started saying, look, actually, I can't supervise this PhD without adequate supervision and support and time and and remuneration. I can't teach without a secure contract. I can't actually go about doing my research without proper research training in that area. And within that, ensure that we embed safety and well-being and rights and dignity and inclusion and accessibility in all we do. That may be another way of going at it. I I know that that there are some plans, again, the Office for Students is going to look at the sort of link of providing NHS care and mental health care for students. Um, I'm one of the few people actually who's ever researched both things at a high level. And I did offer again to be a critical friend and helper to them. And I have heard nothing back as usual, but I will continue to keep saying, I, I think it's important that we keep, not just sharing our stories of mental health, but those of us who are in a position to do so, document and expose. I think it's re- I think it's been very valuable for me, both personally and I think for other people to see that this is not a new area. This hasn't just suddenly sprung up. I'm not new to this, but people were doing this a long time before me. And again, if you look at sort of um, outside the American STEM focus is which is really where a lot of the anxieties in this area and most of the research is sort of concentrated currently people in the global south have been doing really interested in work for this for a long long time and they're still doing really innovative work now and we're not making as much use of that as we should um and i think also there's been loads of really deep philosophical critical work on the academy and universities going back a long way that we could be drawing on still and should be noting um, that tells us people have tried to bring change and it's resisted and I think that's important to note as well so it's setting up your support network documenting what's going on providing solutions that you think would work for other people looking to see what other people are doing and sharing that and it might be we have to just do that for ourselves right now And it may be that you agree with your colleagues that, okay, your university is not going to set up a training day on um, safety or integrity or productivity, but um, there might be some online videos or this podcast or other things as a jumping off point that they can discuss with. Um, There's something about burnout and stress 
that makes us exhausted and we want someone to come along and fix things. And at our most ground down, it's really hard to say to people, you need to have hope and you need to have courage and you need to be persistent, you know, especially if you're sick or disabled or otherwise excluded. Um, you know, if you're a parent or a carer or you've been bereaved, there's lots going on in our lives that makes this really hard. But pragmatically, I think that's how we have to proceed for now. So we do need to push for things. But when they don't deliver it, I think we have to hold them accountable. So when they do have their mental health day or whatever, you know, backpatting activity, you need to be there with the evidence to say, actually, we offered this or we asked for this. You know, it's no good saying that PhD students are suffering when you have not put in place adequate supervision and support and training for that to happen or adequate fees or payments. So I think it's it's that at a time when we're very, very tired that we need to do that work. Um, but also so drawing on, I mean, anything that makes you feel that you can cope, really, mm. um, mm-hmm. that's not also harming you is crucial. I think this this message of hope is so important uh, when you don't feel like you've got the energy to keep persisting, to keep trying to to do what you know you need to do. And I think some really great advice there for us as individuals. Um, but uh, retaining at the same time, I love it, and you always do this: is that yeah, I'm here to help you as an individual, but I'm not taking my eye off that systemic cause. Uh, and uh, so you've offered help to government office for students and, and to many others in this area. Um, we've got a couple of minutes left. I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about what you can offer to help people um, in management roles, um, but also what you can do for individual students, um, PhD students, uh, researchers, academics like myself. Um, tell us a little bit more about what, what people can do if they want to, to work with you, how you can help. I think the first thing that would be really helpful is getting being well in academia into libraries. I think people are often put off. It's again the the downside of the Trojan horse is if you're very honest about something, people are like, you know, actually we'd probably prefer the stealth title. Um, but yeah, I would say getting being well in academia into libraries because it signposts to help. It explains very simply ways you can help yourself it's not going to change your life I don't claim that that's going to happen it's written in the sort of tradition of of advice giving which is it's only going to take you a little bit further than you were but hopefully that's far enough that you can then get to the next bit of support that then propels you even further so that will be you know if you want to buy it lovely but get it in your libraries get it as electronic copies so that everyone can access it would be a great way to start because it's designed that you can use it for teaching and pastoral care you can also use it in your own support and well-being and it's designed to be global so that there are lots of resources in there they're not just uk focused they're they're, they're focused all over as much as i could find different different resources of support um my offer to research councils uh to universities uk to office for students to all of those bodies remains that i am very happy to discuss how we can look at the causes and solutions that were driving a lot of mental distress so that we can then leave the mental health professionals to do their job. You know, I am not a mental health professional. I am somebody who's got a passion for research and and making it safer and more inclusive and more ethical. And because of that, I'm very keen to make sure we do it really well and we don't make people unhappy or unwell 
through the way that we operate academic systems. So my offer will continue to be there and let us see, let us see if, if anything happens. But it, it, it remains to be there. And then I think with universities, the work I do with universities is either working with doctoral programmes or with um, HR departments or, or with university departments to do training at different levels. So it might be for postgrads, it might be for ECRs. Most of my work's in that area, but I do also quite a lot for senior academics around sort of pastor, pastoral care and supervision and safety. Um, and I'm really interested in in sort of making research better. So the practical how-to stuff, uh, which doesn't sound fun, but I promise I make it fun. Somebody wants, um, had I ever understudied for Julie Walters in my feedback for uh, my training? And that's the best compliment I've ever had. So I promise it won't be boring. But um, I think even if it's just a sort of a session on critical friendship of sitting down. So with a lot of departments, that's what we've done is I've just sat with them and got them to tell me what do they do already and what do they know about. And we create campus care maps and we map what's available and we look at how to embed systems and we look at how to make everything just a bit better across campus. And we go with their strengths. You know, it's not a... I think we're all... There's a lot of shame in this at the moment that we're all exhausted and we're all really battered by this whole system. And then we're made to feel like we're doing a bad job. And... Although I think, you know, I do get frustrated, especially on social media and, and shout, and maybe sometimes I shouldn't as much. The work I like to do is very gentle. It's very collectivist. It's, it's us working together at different levels, at different times in our research careers to just make it easier um, and, and to help the communities we are here to research and support and serve. So I think it's... It, that that will be the sort of general areas that I'm working but I would say if anybody's interested you know just to say can I help because if I can't I know somebody who can yeah uh, you do in fact describe yourself as an agony aunt on on Twitter um so yeah very 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 accessible and 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 yeah thank you and there's a there's a a humility a gentleness a compassion that comes across um, not only in what you've said but in how you've said that uh, today um uh, and uh, and I, just to back up um, i've read this and um and it is just packed full so i'm holding up to, to the camera and you can't see this i read being well in academia <laughs> and it is just packed full of practical advice um and just yeah there's a plan a and there's a plan b uh, the, the detail with which you have uh, gone into uh, every conceivable uh, challenge um and also a very helpful um index at the back uh, whether you read it from from cover to cover or you just have it here um, uh, to to dip into the the bits that are relevant to you, it's definitely worth getting. And uh, I've put a link in the show notes uh, to both this and your last uh, book, uh, the Research Companion, Petra. So it just remains for me to say thank you. It's uh, it's been a, a wide ranging, but uh, but for me, a really heartwarming and helpful conversation and I hope for, for you if you've been listening to this that, that you're having the same reaction as I am so thank you Patrick I really appreciate it